morning into dancing. And sometimes, I think in our culture, it's interesting, you probably noticed this too with the whole Robin Williams thing, we want to skip over sadness to go straight to celebration. Let's just celebrate it. Instead of saying, you know, sometimes it's okay, if you know the Chronicles of Narnia, when Aslan asks Shasta and Aslan says to him, tell me your sadness. It's okay to talk about sadness. So actually, before, we, before I preach, I'm going to ask Dawn, new wisher, if she would just pray for the people we just talked about. Sandra, uh, Brian Arnold, I think it's on, and um, Brent's son. So. Lord God, we just come before you, and we thank you, Lord, that you do um, turn our morning into to dancing, and that you promise to pour out the oil of gladness. But Lord, we thank you that we can bring our heavy and our sad hearts before you. So, Lord, I just pray right now for Brian Arnold and his family, Lord, and I pray for it's Cassandra, Lord Jesus, and um, for this gentleman, um, the Mormon bishop that was here with us, Lord Brent Sweeney. God, I just pray that you would um, work in this time of sadness, Lord, and let people see the hope that you um, want to give to us, but also the comfort, Lord, that, that you give in these sad times. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Don. And there may be others here, and I didn't mean to exclude anybody else. Those are just the ones that came to mind, but um, sadness is okay. Um, one other thing before I open God's Word this morning is, you know, Dan had mentioned the giving, and just to kind of update for people, uh, right now the giving, at, I mean, the, the financial situation in Exodus is probably as red flaggish as it's been in about five to seven years. I won't go into all the details of that. So I'm just, if, somebody, if you would pray about that, and if those of you who uh, have been giving were grateful, those of you who maybe, uh, maybe slowed on your giving, and just I encourage you to respond and see what God's have you to do with that. Um, it's not like dire, but it's, uh, it seems to be in a situation that we're not quite sure. We, we know some factors. Other factors, we just don't know what's going on. And it's been in the last few months that way. So if you just pray about that. Um, what we've always said before is God does not have a cash flow plot problem. And I've said before, too, to people, if you ever question us asking about money, please send your money to another church uh, for a number of months. Even though I'm asking them what our situation is, uh, it's kind of like what Dan said. God doesn't want the money from you. He wants it for you. So if, you, if it's just a habit of yours, if it hasn't been a habit of yours to let go of money for God's work, I'll give you any number of addresses of other churches in town to send it to if you question motive or how we spend it here. But I just want to be honest about where we are with our church and what's going on, because um, we do want to be generous people individually and corporately. All right? So let me pray, and then we're going to look into God's Word this morning. God, we are grateful um, that you turn mourning into gladness, to dancing. And we're grateful even for the example of Jesus, who... Um, showed his humanity by being overwhelmed with grief at the, upon his, the night of his crucifixion or overcome with sadness at the death of Lazarus. So we want to be the kind of people, God, who can be on, honest with you and open with you. And we're grateful for the peace and the joy and the comfort that your Holy Spirit brings to us in those situations. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, uh, word for the day. New word, not, not a new word, but a word for the day. The word for the day is catalyst. All right, and I have on this, uh, you're going to see this over the next few weeks and maybe even longer, um, Catalyst. Everybody say that word, one, two, three, Catalyst. All right, thank you. Uh, catalyst is a personal thing that causes change. So, uh, you typically, anybody here chemistry majors? 
I won't ask for an explanation of what actually a catalyst is in chemistry, but we know a catalyst is something that either speeds up or changes some kind of chemical composition. Am I accurate to some, some degree? Okay. So it, it brings about, it's a change agent. It changes something. Um, a catalyst can be a person. Uh, my brother and sister-in-law were the catalysts in my wife and I getting together. They said I was upon a blind date. They tried to catalyze with me about 10 other times before that didn't work, but finally with Kathy it did. All right? So a catalyst is something that brings about change, and it's usually something that brings about change in a certain status quo. So something's this way, and then a catalyst is either poured into it or whatever situation or person is a catalyst, and change happens, and sometimes, sometimes the change is chaotic and violent, but it's cha something changes. Um, you look in the, in the Bible, the people that were, Jesus is a catalyst. Change, he brought about change because of what he did. He kind of stepped in and brought change. So that's the word we're going to start with today, catalyst. And you're going to see this word in the next few weeks in a, in a number of different settings. Because what we, want to, what we want to be at Exodus, we want to be people who are catalysts. We want to be the kind of people that, that initiate change, not just in our lives, but through our lives. And we all know that when, you're, when you have a certain flow of life, you know, if life is working for you, but it's not where you know you feel like it needs to be in terms of the capacity of joy, sometimes change, maybe all the time, change just can be a really hard thing. Because to be a catalyst means you have to step out of the normal steps of what you're doing, and you have to push against status quo, and you get resistance when you push against status quo, so think about maybe your marriage, think about your internal life, your habit life, think about your relationships with other people, think about your finances. My guess is you could all talk about something that I wish this was more like this. Well, in order to get from here to here, some kind of catalytic action is necessary. So to bring about change, you need a catalyst. All right, so that's the word for the day. Now, here's the problem with the word, with the catalyst, being a catalyst. A catalyst usually, I mean, it's always nice to say, well, it's, it's kind of like a, you know, like a rah-rah football speech. Oh, go out and bring, bring change and change for the world, whatever. But we all know that is hard. Every one of us has had New Year's resolutions or, you know, September year resolutions or whatever, and you realize the to, to take the actions that catalyze change in your life, your marriage, your money, your career, whatever, is a lot harder than just talking about it. And you always don't know if you have what it takes to bring about the change. I'm actually going to show up, we're going to watch a video clip here. It's actually from a movie called Mystery Men. It's kind of a funny movie. It was 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, for those of you who follow Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but it's basically a, a clip about, it, it's a movie about second-rate superheroes. Like one guy's superpower was using a shovel, one was a bowling ball, one was, believe it or not, flatulence. Uh, one superpower was, uh, he was called Mr. Uh, angry, or Mr., yeah, uh, Mr. Furious, because his superpower was getting angry at things. So these are not like superheroes, they're like, they didn't make the cut. And they're faced with a situation. There's a bad guy, like they're all superhero members. There's a bad guy involved, and they're trying to figure out, because they're the only heroes even left, because the superheroes are all kind of, they've been disposed of. They, it's up to them 
to bring about change. So let's just watch the conversation they have about change. unsure about that last word he said what the fork so his superpower was throwing forks but the, the the line that grabbed me in this funny clip was we're all we're in over our heads and we know it and I showed that clip because there's not a single person here that is a superhero in terms of we're all ordinary people None of us have like super spiritual gifts to, you know, see great things happen. At least we don't think we do. We, we, we would kind of more relate to the people who think, well, you know, isn't it better? What's the line he said? Sometimes the courageous thing to do is to run away. You know, let's just kind of, let's be okay with status quo. So um, we're going to look today at a situation where someone in the Bible had a situation that really was overwhelming. They were in over their heads and they knew it. And then what do you do? What do I do when you want to see change come about? You don't know if you even have what it takes to be a catalyst for that change. But you believe, maybe there's something that God believes about you that you don't even yet believe in yourself of what God can do in and through you in bringing about that change. So here's what we're doing. Last week, we're doing, I'm just doing a series. I started this last week and just for a few weeks. It's just about Exodus Church. Where are we going? What's, what's next? Who, who are we? Not just who are we, but even for you individually, where are you going? What do you want to see true in your life a month from now, six months from now, a year from now? 
and what 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 are you doing now to get there? But also, what's the journey going to be like? We talked last week from the book of Exodus, how their journey seemed to be, and I talked about the fact that God doesn't understand straight lines because he didn't give them straight lines, fast paths. It was around about, sometimes going backwards, sometimes forward, sometimes sitting still for a number of days. So sometimes our journey to change to see us to be the kind of people full, alive, awake, and free. Sometimes that journey doesn't seem to make sense to us. So that was last week. Today I want to talk about another part of the journey that's true for you and I as we follow Jesus, as we want to be the kind of people who bring about change and in our lives or through our lives. So to do that, we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah, just um, 450 B.C. And I'll just real, real quick history here. Nehemiah lived in the time where God's people were in exile in Babylon. So modern-day Iran, Iraq, they had been exiled from their country, basically because God allowed that to happen because of their sin. So Jerusalem, in essence, was somewhat in rubble. There were still some people living there, but Nehemiah, a Jew, was living in Babylon, serving the Babylonian king. Here's a report from people who lived in Jerusalem that the city walls... Uh, we're still in shambles back in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is way far away, but he hears a report about his homeland, about his home city, that the city walls are in, are in rubble. Now you might think, what's the big deal about city walls? But in, in that context, in that cultural context, it rep having the city walls intact represented wholeness, security, peace, prosperity. Having the city walls crumbled down represented disarray, disappointment, discouragement, and defeat. So I think the analogy is somewhat clear in terms of the city walls of Jerusalem and maybe the city walls of your own soul. There's parts of you, parts of me where you think, it's just not what it, I wish it was. I wish there was change. I wish there was more peace, security, wholeness, strength in my heart and my soul. But I, what I tend to see is disarray. I see some good points and then disarray, discouragement. What, and what do you do? So Nehemiah, in this case, had a, had a clear sense of God. He was supposed to go back and rebuild the wall. One of these, he was in over his head. Because he was way far away. He didn't really know what to expect. He had not been to Jerusalem. We don't know how many years it had been since he'd been back there. But he just heard the report that it was not in a good shape. So he goes back to Jerusalem. He goes back, and this is what he sees. He sees walls and rubble. The city's being built a little bit, but it's still not finished. Right? You may be seeing some growth in your spiritual life, but you know you're not finished, and maybe you feel stuck in the next step may feel like you're over your head because it's a big task to rebuild the walls. But Nehemiah decides with God's prompting, I'm gonna, we're going to rebuild the walls. And I'll tell you the long and the short of the story, they actually rebuild the walls in 52 days, which in that situation was pretty incredible. And he was in over his head, and yet you think, oh, he went back and he rebuilt the walls. Well, that sounds easy. That's a pretty easy, catalytic event. He made a decision. He went back. He figured out what to do. They did it in 52 days. But if you know the rest of the story and how the 52 days were fraught with all kinds of difficulty, 
that may be a better analogy for your story and my story. Because here's what happens. So they start rebuilding the wall. And then Nehemiah runs into a principle that is true in all of our lives. Go to the next slide. Here's the principle. Any movement toward freedom and life will always be opposed. All right, say that with me. Any movement toward freedom and life will always be opposed. Nehemiah runs into this. He runs into this huge obstacle that's the reality of all of our spiritual lives. And here I'll use a couple of now. Think about this. When, when God, when Moses was born, who was going to be the deliverer for God's people, what was the immediate reaction in the world around Moses? Pharaoh decides to have the little boys killed. Any movement toward freedom of life has opposition. Think about when Jesus was born. What happened? Herod decides we're going to kill babies. There's many other times in Scripture where somebody takes a catalytic, of, there's a catalytic event about to happen and opposition is right there. Quickly. The book of Revelation talks about the dragon ready to devour the woman as she gave birth. It's a reference back to the birth of Jesus. And not only is it true in the stories of the Bible, but I'm guaranteeing you it's true in your life. Anytime you've made a movement toward freedom and life, you hit unusual opposition. Anytime you think, I want to talk to my husband or wife about, I think we need to make some changes in how we relate in our marriage. I think it could be, we could find some more freedom in life. We could be a little wholesome. And then something happens and you argue about who burned the toast. I mean, it's unusual how things happen. Or you decide, I'm going to start giving uh, more money away to church, to missionaries, whatever. And the next day, your water heater breaks. Now, I'm not saying Satan is always just at master control doing those things. But I do know that any time you move toward freedom of life, there is a force in the world around us that does not want that to happen. And there will be opposition. And, and Nehemiah, in the story of Nehemiah, runs into that. So in the bottom of the screen here, you see three names. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They all sound like awful names to pronounce, and they are. But they were, the, they were three guys that lived in the area. They were leaders. They were somewhere related to the Jewish people, but they were not happy with what Nehemiah was doing. So let me just read a few passages. This is from Nehemiah chapter 2. Just leave it on the screen we have on there. But when, this is chapter 2, verse 19. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? How many times when you first think about a change in your life, and then this thought comes to your mind, it's like... That's not going to work. What are you doing? And you think the scoffing thought or the emotion is your own, but I'm going to assert it may be coming from somewhere else. But it's interesting that, boom, right away, the opposition is not like physical force. It's scoffing and contempt. <laughs> you're in way over your head, Nehemiah. You're way over your head. Do you think you're going to rebuild the wall? So they, Nehemiah, his response to that simply was, no, the God, told, God told us to do this, we're going to do this. Boom. So you think, okay, good, they're past that opposition. Opposition over. But it's not. He made a change. I don't know. Then we start in, in chapter 4. And this is where the opposition gets pretty fierce, not unlike the opposition of your life and my life when we seek change through some kind of 
being a catalyst that God's called you to be. Here's how, here's how verse chapter 4 starts. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and he mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build a wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones made from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, Ted, that stone wall would collapse even if a fox walked on it. It's amazing the power of contempt and anger and how that slows us down in the change we know God may be leading us to make. Because we tend to hear in our minds or in, this, in our spirits some kind of voice that says, not a good idea, it's a stupid idea, it can never happen, you're in way over your head. Won't happen. So that then, but then Nehemiah's response to that is simply, he says, Then I prayed, Hear us, our God, for bringing me, me mocked, made their scoffing fall back on their own heads. And Nehemiah has a little longer prayer. Then later on in verse 4, Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem are not done. And I'm saying that because sometimes we think we've gone through one obstacle and we think, Good, that's over. Um, but the enemy is never done in your life. And here's what happens next. But when, since the same chapter 4, just a few verses later, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead, that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against us. So now the opposition does not just scoff and mock and make fun of, now it's a threat. Fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and, and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. So now the opposition comes from within. The workers were getting tired. There's so much rubble to be moved. Yeah, this change I was kind of envisioning for my marriage or my finances or my relationships, it's a lot more rubble than I thought. And maybe it's not worth it. Maybe I am in way over my head. And this idea of being catalyst man or catalyst woman was really a great idea when it happened. But let's just get back in line and go back to status quo living. That's a real temptation every one of us faces. And some of you are probably facing it right now with some issue in your life. The people of Judah were tired. They were complaining. Um, we'll never be able to build a wall by ourselves. Not going to happen. Over our head. Can't do it. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. So not only are they saying, yeah, it's too much work, and we're getting threatened by these people. Sambal, Tobiah, Geshem, and all the people they were influencing. And it just goes on and on and on. Again, Nehemiah's response with perseverance, but he prays. He says, God, um, tell us what to do. And then it doesn't end yet, because in Nehemiah 6, Nehemiah, uh, Tobiah, and Geshe come up with a plan to trap Nehemiah. In this case, they're trying to have this, incur they have this really intimidating plan to try to trap him, so they're trying to intimidate him, trying to discourage. So go to the next slide. So in the course of a few chapters, the strategy against Nehemiah as a catalyst for change, 
the strategy against Nehemiah to see something rebuilt that would bring wholeness, peace, life, and joy to people included anger, rage, mockery, ridicule, threats, confusion, dissension, complaining, weariness, false accusation, intimidation, discouragement, and a false prophet. Someone who told Nehemiah actually in chapter 6, uh, this is what God's saying, but Nehemiah knew that wasn't God because it was basically a trap to, to get Nehemiah to stumble. And I would say to each one of you, I can't imagine, if you're, unless, unless you are a super superhero, but if you're like the rest of us who just have bowling balls and shovels and other things to fight with, there's a few things on there that you could probably check off really quick and say, that's, that's what I'm getting right now at me. I'm trying to see change happen in my, I've got this issue in my life, this habit, this issue in my heart that I can't seem to, I know there's a dark spot there, I don't know what to do about it, or I know there's this unhealthy cycle in my relationship with my husband, my wife, my son, daughter, mom, dad, whatever. I know the way I think about my money is unhealthy. I know the way I think about my future. I know the way I think about sex is unhealthy. I know, I know, I know, and I want to change it. And we all have, my guess is, we all have very good intentions. But those intentions then get stopped because something starts speaking against us and it discourages us, slows us down, then it sits us down and then we just go back to zero. It's kind of like playing, what's the game, Candyland, you know, which I haven't played lately, but I used to when my kids were, uh, all of a sudden you hit a square and it's like, oh, I got to slide all the way back to the beginning and now let's just quit the game and go watch TV. I hate being back at zero in Candyland. What? <laughs> so... Oh, that's okay. It was just, I, okay. <laughs> that is my uh, stepdad, so I'll deal with him later. <laughs> so, uh, but but when you look at these, my guess is there's something on there. If you're honest, that is maybe maybe Satan's figured out a primary technique that he knows works with you. Maybe he's figured out a primary technique that he knows that works with you right now in the situation that you're facing. And the temptation is, <laughs> sometimes the most courageous, courageous thing to do is run away. And we even kind of start believing, oh, well, it's the best thing just to kind of, don't rock the boat, my marriage isn't awful, so I really don't need to deal with this issue in which I'm bringing unhealth into our marriage, or I don't need to challenge my husband or wife, because our marriage isn't awful, let's just leave well enough alone, and we kind of buy into the theological posture of don't rock the boat. But it seems like what Jesus loves to do, as the catalyst in chief, if I can call him that, he loves rocking the boat. He loves flipping tables. He loves doing that because he loves your freedom, he loves your joy, he loves you being fully alive. Satan, on the flip side, though, would want nothing else to happen apart from that. He will stop you at any cost, and it's these techniques that he typically uses. So the question I'll throw out there next slide is, what's the enemy's voice saying to you lately? Years ago, uh, there was a... Um, missionary or a pastor named Oswald Sanders, not Oswald Chambers, but you wouldn't know this guy, he lived back in the 1900s somewhere. He was asked one time to come speak in a missionary compound in Japan. So it was this whole 
collection of missionaries that all lived in Japan in the 1940s or 50s. And when he went there to speak at their conference, the title of his talk was, What I Would Do If I Were Satan in This Missions Compound. And some of the missionaries were a little taken aback, like, well, what? He said, no, this is, you need to be thinking about that. You know, uh, I'll, I'll just pick on Trevor because I just looked at Trevor. Okay, maybe Trevor needs to be thinking about what I would do if I were Satan in Trevor Babcock's life. Trevor knows himself. He might know the ways in which Satan knows how to get him to trip and fall. So what is the strategy Satan is using? Or what might he be about to use that you kind of have a sense may be coming, but you kind of think if I just pretend it's not there, it won't happen. That's how I am with check engine lights, you know. If I, if I, if I don't think, if I can, I just talked to somebody recently, put duct tape over the check engine light. It's like, well, if it's not there, it's not happening. But if you were Satan, what would you do in your marriage to set you back a few steps or at least stop you from making any kind of progress toward freedom and life and joy? If you were Satan, what would you do in your own heart and own spirit to stop you from taking steps toward financial freedom and a life of generosity? What would you do if you were Satan to do that in your life and in your financial world? What would you do if you were Satan and you had made a decision to step away from a habit that you knew was not bringing life to you from God, but if anything was stifling the life of God in you, what would you do is if you made that choice to do that, what would you do if you were Satan to keep you from even making one step past step number one in freedom? What would you do? Paul, uh, Peter, talks about, talk about the New Testament that we, are, we, we, cannot, we should not be unaware of the schemes of Satan because he prowls around like a roaring lion wanting to devour us. Now, I'm not saying this to instill fear. I mean, we're not going to be like, oh, yeah, my car broke down. It must have been Satan. I mean, some, to some degree, that's a little bit of a cop-out and kind of cheapening, I think, the, the reality of the battle that we all face. But at the same time, there are times where we need to be aware that what we are going through is more of a battle than we understand. I was just reading yesterday a comment. Somebody said, this is an old, old Christian person who's long dead. Be kind to everyone. You have no idea the battle they're fighting. You have no idea the battle they're fighting. But to some degree, also be aware that we, we, we have stepped, we, we were born into a world at war. And I don't mean Al-Qaeda, Nazi Germany, or anything else that might happen in our lifetime. But your whole story, my whole story, is about the assault that the enemy has on your heart because he fears what you could be if your heart was fully alive, fully awake, and fully free. He knows what you could be. And we all think, oh, I'm just like a bowling ball superhero with a shovel to hit people with, or I throw forks. No, you have way more to offer than what you think you have. Way more. And you've bought into the lie. I've bought into the lie. Well, not, and I really don't have much to offer, so I'll just kind of coast in life. But your story is about a long and brutal assault that the enemy has against your heart. Because he knows if he can keep your heart down, he doesn't have to be afraid of you anymore. But the flip side of the story is, Jesus said he came to set us free. And he came to defeat the works of the enemy. He came to give you back your heart. And he came to make your heart full of, 
fully alive, awake, and free, full of joy, love, and courage. That's what Jesus wants for you. And this last passage here, this is the passage from John chapter uh, 10. And Jesus says this, The thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy. Uh, my purpose... And, and I'll stop on that one too. So if, the, if Jesus says that Satan steals, kills, and destroys... Sometimes maybe when something in your life is getting stolen, killed, or destroyed, maybe we should at least think that Satan might be involved again. Not, I don't want to find Satan behind every time you get a flat tire or Satan. But at least begin to think, I wonder if what's happening in my... I'm feeling discouraged, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling something that, isn't, that seems off. Maybe it is a spiritual attack. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is. And we tend to kind of... I think we tend to write on our end of the theological perspective... We tend to kind of think, well, no, that must be something else. Now, there are other people in the Christian world that everything that goes wrong is, is Satan. You know, the devil made me do it, or, you know, Satan is behind my chipped fingernail, or whatever. But I think sometimes for some of us, we don't consider that enough. And we think, well, these problems I'm having are just kind of physical, or I've got to figure out some stuff, I've got to get better sleep. Maybe true, but there may be something else going on. In the story of Nehemiah, who was a godly man godly leader there was nothing as far as he, we know from Nehemiah was a human God he got pff, all barrels to try to slow down this process but again the promise is from Jesus is that he comes to give us life now it, I'm not saying quote this verse ten times and Satan will go away I am saying uh, understand that Jesus what he says was he has this ability to set us free. And scripture says, the greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. So for those of you, which probably is all of us, who are trying to seek change in your life, you want to see change in your heart, your marriage, your family, your kids' lives, your parents' lives, your money, your job, your habits, whatever. Every one of us. And to those of you who have either stopped trying or you feel like you're hitting discouragement, defeat, accusation, threats, whatever, internal scoffing, don't quit. Because Jesus said he's for us and not against us. And scripture says, if God be for us, then who can be against us? So the change that you feel like God stirred in you to rebuild in you, just like Nehemiah with the wall, do not question whether that was God. Because if it's moving toward freedom and life, it is God. It's not Satan. Satan's not going to move you toward freedom and life. If it's moving you toward freedom and life then the good chances are it's the Spirit of God doing that, and the good chances are um, that's what's behind it. And the absolute reality is he will walk with you through that in the midst of getting fired at. Because he's with you. He's not going to leave you. He will not leave you. He said he won't. Promise that. So as, we, as I think about my life, as I think about our life as a church, you have the, they have the exodus where they're gone, you know, God doesn't know how to draw straight lines and he's having people go this way to this way to get to there. And then we find out not only do we have to go in these circuitous, what? whatever, circuitous, whatever the word is, routes, then we find out we're going to get shot at as we're going? Come on, God, it's supposed to be easier than this, isn't it? No! Because the promise is at the end there is going to be a kind of joy and life and love and courage and freedom. But if we expect uh, God to give us the American dream because we 
trust him? Simply because we trust him and he should give us what we think we want? It's not the gospel. The gospel is he will set us free. He will bring us freedom, life, and joy. But God doesn't do straight lines and God doesn't God does not stop all guns being shot at us. But he always is with us. And we know his power is greater than the power of the enemy. Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you for the... Thank you for people like Nehemiah. And Gideon and Deborah and all kinds of other people throughout Scripture who were in way over their heads. But something in them was willing to trust you and that they would trust that you would supernaturally do something that would move them toward freedom and life. And we want to be like those people. Because in, in this room this morning, we really are a bunch of uh, ordinary people. But we believe that that's the story of the Bible, is ordinary people who open up the door to your supernatural prompting and power and accomplish incredible things. So would our confidence come in you and not in our own wisdom? Would our confidence come in you and not in our own experience? And would our confidence come in you and not be deterred uh, by the discouragement, the accusations, and the intimidation that sometimes, that often Satan will throw our way through any variety of means? And uh, greater are you, Jesus, in us uh, than the one who's in the world. And you promise that and we believe that. And we ask this on Christ's name. Amen.